what we didn't expect was, well, actually with COVID, the market would rally and actually post COVID, the market would crash. Welcome back to series 10 of 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category defining founders. From purpose led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today's 40 Minute Mentor is Tim Chong, co founder and CEO of Yonder, an epic new credit card that is revolutionizing people's relationship with credit. They're on a mission to build a credit experience that empowers young people to live their best lives and build responsible spending habits. Prior to Yonder, Tim spent over six years at Accenture and three years at ClearScore as head of product, launching zero to one products and markets, serving over 12 million users across the UK, South Africa, India, and Australia. I am super excited to dig into Tim's journey with Yonder, unpacking his passion for reframing how the world sees and perceives credit, plus talk about the realities of building a fintech during an economic downturn and how he raised an eye-watering £62.5 million Series A funding round, co-led by one of JBM's favorite clients, Northzone and RTB Global. So let's dive straight in and kick this one off. Hi, Tim. Great to have you on the podcast. How are things? Good, good. Thanks so much for having me, James. Absolutely great day today in London. It's actually sunny. It is sunny. Yeah, I'm recording this. I'm in East Sussex today and it's glorious, which makes a bit of a change this summer. So we'll take it. I'll take that as a good omen for uh, the conversation we're about to have. So we're going to dive straight in, but we always like to warm up our guests with some quick fire questions. So please finish these sentences after me. Number one, I grew up wanting to be a pilot either in the Air Force or a commercial airliner. And then I realized I need 2020 vision. So I gave up on those dreams. <laughs> it's, it's really sad, isn't it? How many people want to become pilots, but they're something intrinsically they can't do anything about holds them back from those dreams. What was it about being a pilot? Where did that come from? Is that anything to do with your family or just a boyhood uh, passion? I just thought it was quite, I just really think flying is quite cool. And it's like, oh, what a great way to explore the world for free. So that was my original plan. <laughs> nice. Entrepreneurship is grateful that one uh, didn't come off, but thank you for sharing. The last time I was scared was when? I was hiking Tortonga in Norway and I was woefully underprepared because it was snowing and I didn't have snowshoes. We didn't have hiking poles and it started raining. I ended up hiking till about 11 p.m. at night. Very, very underprepared. Oh, God, that sounds scary. I can't proclaim to be a great hiker. We were not great either. That's exactly why we weren't prepared. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. I think that I'd probably find myself in exactly the same situation. The most memorable day in my career was? Getting our first term sheet to fund Yonder when we were first getting going. Yeah, I can imagine what an amazing feeling that must have been. And uh, yeah, can't wait to dig more into the Yonder story shortly. My biggest failure to date is? I have unsuccessfully tried to move to Singapore, I think about three times now. I actually got a job offer. I turned it down for another job. I then went through like six or seven rounds of job interviews and then I bombed the final round interview. Oh no. Oh, that is sad. And then I ended up turning down one, not getting that, and then not getting the other one as well. And then I also applied to go to grad school there as well and also got turned down. So I was like, Singapore's not for me. Well, London is happy to have you. <laughs> and if there was one thing that I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be... 
think making founders look like superheroes. They get up at 4 a.m., meditate, take ice baths, and die in the morning and working 100 hours a week. I think it's a super unhealthy culture, and I don't think it's actually really accurate to what it's really like. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And as somebody that kind of probably fell a bit into the hustle trap in the first couple of years of JBM and burnt out horribly, I'm a big advocate for striking a better balance. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for that, Tim. It's I feel like we're already warmed up nicely. And I'm obviously keen to get into the Yonder experience. But before we get there, we'd love to learn a bit more about your formative years. So do you mind telling us a bit about your upbringing and I guess what you feel ultimately sent you down the path of founder life. Yeah, so it's pretty funny that I've sort of done full circle. So my parents are actually immigrants from Malaysia and they actually moved, they lived in the UK for about four or five years in Sunderland out of all places. And then they finally went back in Malaysia and then back to Australia, which I was born. And so I was a grew up with a family who had moved around. I obviously was born in Australia, but my, my parents had sort of taken the, the route of having to sort of strike out on new adventures by leaving home both for studying university and also to raising family as well. And my dad's first job actually in Australia was Hewlett-Packard. And most of you who know or come from this space know that Hewlett-Packard was actually one of the founding companies of Silicon Valley. It was also a very cool place to work at back in the day. He worked in sort of infrastructure engineering, working on data centers before cloud was a big thing. And I spent a lot of my childhood with a lot of like new computers at home. I think we had one of the first 386 and 486 computers and in fact, my mum taught me how to touch type when I think I was six or seven years old. She gave me a book and said, learn how to touch type. It's really, really important. You know, it's this thick bounder book. And she said, you should go learn how to touch type. And here's a computer and go learn. So I sort of grew up around, back in the day, it's called information technology, but I grew up around computers. And I still remember even reading the biography of IBM, Microsoft, HP, and Sony when I was like a, a young teenager. I don't know why, they were just around our house. So I always had this like attraction to the journey of starting something and building something. And also that sort of how that interacts with like the tech sector and how the tech sector was really changing things as well in the world. And so I always kind of had an itch or an inkling that I wanted to work in tech. Although funnily enough, I think my original idea was to actually just run a computer repair shop. My wife and I always have a, a joke that in another life I would be the guy putting, um, selling, fixing mobile phones at one of the, you know, Leicester Square Station. And my wife will be putting on screen protectors because she's really good at doing that. So that would have been my alternative life. But we ended up starting younger instead. So yeah, I guess, I, I guess sort of fast forward about five, 10 years after I went to university, I thought I should get a sensible job instead of running a computer repair shop and started working consulting. And part of that was really because there wasn't a massive startup or tech scene in Australia. And I live in Melbourne as well, which had an even smaller tech scene so at the time I was very much like I didn't consider working overseas and so I guess the natural job was like look consulting feels like a safe job feels like a nice prestigious job to go and travel the world and so that was sort of how I ended up landing in consulting amazing and you've had a, an eclectic career you, you know started in consulting moved into product management and now you're a founder and it feels like all of your experiences have taken you all the way around the world so can you share a bit more about just I guess maybe some of the fondest memories from the earlier parts of your career or any particular moments that left a, an imprint I really enjoyed just exploring the world the one good thing about consulting apart from the hours and the pressure is you do get to travel the world for free, basically, on your company's dime. So I went to Kuala Lumpur quite a lot, spent some time in Chicago, spent some time in 
living in Africa, spent some time in Europe, spent some time in New Zealand as well. So because I think it was a really, really great way to just explore. I think there's one period of my time where I would basically, I think I spent about 200 to 250 days a year on the road, which was at the time when you're in your early 20s, a really, really fun way to go and explore the world. I think that some of the sort of fondest memories was probably during the consulting times, two, two or three milestone moments. I think one, I spent some time actually doing a lot of training for new graduates in Kuala Lumpur. And so that was hugely fun training new consultants who were basically first or second year into their career and playing just a small role in helping them in their personal growth and development. Uh, I think secondly, I spent a year living in, in Kenya as part of our international development consulting practice called um, Accenture Development Partnerships. And that was a phenomenal experience living in, in Nairobi for about nine months. And I was based there, but spent some time in Cape Town, spent some time in London and worked with a phenomenal team from the ADP team that really wanted to do high impact consulting work that wasn't just great for business, but like really great, meaningful work as well. And then before I sort of left consulting, I spent about a, a year running our um, Accenture Development Partnerships Australia New Zealand practice as well, which was, I guess, a, a phenomenal opportunity to work with charities, NGOs, both in Australia, but also in Southeast Asia, whether it was an Asian Development Bank, working with government ministers who worked on development initiatives to help lift the economic standards of millions of people in, in emerging markets as well. So it was this really, really nice pull back to this side of like high impact, but also highly intellectually interesting work as well that I really loved. And quite frankly, that's probably one of the reasons why I stayed for so long, because in a latter couple of years, I, I got to work on some really, really exciting initiatives. Sounds amazing. Sounds like, yeah, some really uh, lasting impressions from the earlier parts of your career. And look, we've seen from all the years we've been doing what we do, we've had the pleasure of working with tons of ex-consultants who have made that move into startups. We've helped many facilitate that. When you look at your transition back in the day from being a consultant into the startup world, how did you find that transition? And what advice would you give for anyone listening to this that might be in that position now? Because I think there's a lot of our listener base that are either have that background or are kind of looking to move into tech? Yeah, I think the first thing was, for me, it was like the fear of the unknown. It was very weird because my job in consulting was my first job out of university and I'd been there for, what, six and a half years. And it was actually quite scary to leave, actually, because you're sort of on this train that you know exactly where it goes, you know exactly what's expected of you. Startups at the time sounded very high risk. It sounded very sort of something that I was not familiar with. And I still remember, actually, even sort of late year four, year five in my consulting career, I was like, actually, I want to make a move for startup. I didn't really know anyone who worked in it. There wasn't that many startups in Australia, to be honest. And I didn't know what kind of job I would do either. And so I was sort of like waiting around in the dark going like, what should I do? I think one of the that really occurred to me though was actually, even if I moved from consulting to startup, I could always go back if it didn't work out. And that was actually quite liberating because I think this feeling of actually, if things don't work out, you can always go back. And so you're not going to go homeless and you're not going to end your career forever. But I do think that when I finally made the plunge, I was like, wow, this is nowhere near as difficult as I thought it would be. And I'm enjoying it far more than I expected. So I think that was like a, a big mental switch for me, realizing that most decisions and career decisions in life are reversible, especially when you're making it a big one. Or it can feel like a big one at the time. It's actually not that big on hindsight. But most decisions are reversible. And you can almost always go back if you're good at your job. So actually, 
the better way of thinking about it was how do I minimize the regret? In other words, like I don't want to look back and be like, I wish I made that move and given it a go. And so I always say that to people now when they're like, oh, should I do this or this? Like, you know, honestly, what's the decision that you would regret the least? Because 99% of times anyway, if it's a bad decision, you could probably go back. It's even one or two years. You're not going to lose those years. That's true. And given you you had your consulting background, like why would you say that consulting is such a, a good foundation for startup folks? Because when you look at a lot of the CEOs that we've, we've worked with or placed, a lot of the exec team, a lot of them have that consulting background. So why is it such a good foundation? I think like part of it is it does attract like a type A personality. So you are around a set of people that are like genuinely really smart. And so being part of that early career is really good because it kind of encourages you to lift your game. And there's obviously just the cliche skills that you learn, whether it's problem solving, stakeholder management, and, you know, being data driven. And I think actually just this mindset of like just getting stuff done. Consulting is built on the fact that you just like get stuff done, which I think is, is really, really transferable to moving to a startup. I would say the flip side though is Unfortunately, consulting, you become a jack of all trades and master of none. And so the other flip side is I think if you stay in consulting for too long, you have this tricky problem where you're like, what the hell do you do when you go into a startup? And quite frankly, they don't need another generalist strategy person because they just need people to go and like build product, sell product. And I think the problem with consulting is they're like, well, I can't do either of those. And so you need to sort of start to find your way and where you can like specialize and actually add direct value, whether you're building something or selling something. Because otherwise, you get in this world where you're like, well, I want to do a strategy well. And actually, at that point, you're joining like more of a scale-up or like very late-stage company. And I don't think you're actually learning new skills. And so I always say that if you do want to join a startup, there is like a certain like span of time where I think actually staying in something for too long is actually detrimental as well. Like if you're there for like 10, 15 years, actually, the skills you're learning is actually not that helpful for building a startup as well. And so... I think I was sort of at the, the point where, you know, by year five, it was like, I'm actually learning skills that I shouldn't be learning because they're actually not helpful for building a startup. I'd say the only parts that were more useful were because I was like running a practice and running a small P&L and building something from scratch. Those things were useful, but the core things of selling consulting work isn't that helpful long-term if you're building a startup because selling consulting work is quite different than selling B2B SaaS or way different than running a consumer business as well. So that's sort of why it came pretty clear to me that, you know, I did have to leave eventually, but the kind of core, say like first three to four years sets of skills are really, really valuable in terms of just getting stuff done and, you know, build, being just being smart and making like smart decisions that are data driven. Fantastic advice. Thank you, Tim. You went from ClearScore, which is obviously a hugely reputable fintech in its own right, um, to ultimately starting Yonder. I think I read somewhere that, that Yonder originally came from your experiences in Kenya. So do you mind just telling us a bit more about the Genesis story, where the vision came from? And then also for anyone that hasn't come across Yonder, we'd love to get your sort of elevator pitch what the business actually does. I kind of mentioned earlier, I moved to Nairobi in sort of early 2016. And I would definitely say I sort of fell into it. It wasn't a intentional plan. I was basically on a mailing list at work that said, you know, he has some interesting projects overseas that are development related. And I'm like, this looks fun. And it was also looking for someone who had a telco background. So my early career in consulting was in, was in telco and media. And I ended up working on a healthcare initiative that was done in partnership with a couple of telco, the Kenya Ministry of Health, and also M-Pesa as well. And for those who don't know M-Pesa, M-Pesa is one of the first mobile money products ever created 
And it came actually out of a DFID project done in, in Kenya, sort of in the early 2000s, where they were funding a microfinance initiative that would allow people in small, sort of, in small villages to access microfinance. And they'll do that, though, through this mobile wallet product. And the reason why it's telco related was actually in Kenya, the percentage of the population that were banked in the early 2000s was, you know, in the low 20%. And so the majority of people in villages did not have access to banking services or ATMs. They did have access to mobile phones, though. And but these were not iPhones. These were basic phones that had SMS, phone call, and this thing called USSD. USSD is this thing where you go like star 134 hash. And for those of you who are old enough, that was how you used to top up your phone plans with like prepaid SIM card with some scratch, some scratch cards. The nice thing is, though, is that you can use the same technology for money remittance as well or micro lending. And and PESA came out of this idea where it was people were originally using it for microfinance, but then realized there was a bigger opportunity to use it as a mobile wallet product. And if you look at what's done to the nation, it is incredible. Now, over 93% of the Kenyan population now have access to some sort of banking services through M-Pesa as a mobile wallet product. And it's actually just revolutionized the economy. I spent time in the most rural parts of Kenya. They don't take Visa. They don't take MasterCard. They don't take Amex, but they do take M-Pesa. And literally everyone from all parts of life in Kenya could use M-Pesa to pay for things, save money, borrow and transfer money from one to another using this M-Pesa file. And it was really like inspiring to see consumer fintech actually revolutionize a nation. And, you know, it was 15 years in the making, but we talk about neobanks now, but actually this was like neobanking in the early 2000s. And it mattered so much because it was people who couldn't access bank accounts who could now access a mobile bank account. And for me, just seeing this story of impact and seeing how that impact the lives of people on a day-to-day level that was super inspiring, and I got to spend a lot of time with the CFO of Safaricom, or the former CFO, who actually was the guy on the ground when they invested and made the capital investment decision to do M-Pesa. And he told me stories about having to you know, literally reissue SIM cards. KYC was done literally with a piece of paper, and they would literally just like write down a SIM card number, give you the SIM card, check your ID, and then like write down your ID details as well. It was a crazy story. And, and I think for me, when I saw that, I was like, wow, consumer fintech? done really well could actually change the trajectory of a nation. And there are very few industries that I believe that you could actually say the nation looks different as a result. And think about this really practically. It's really, really common for people in these countries to move from a village to a major city to work and send money back to their family. And traditionally, the only way to do that was you would have to work, collect money in cash, take that money on a bus, they call matatus, And while you're on that bus, either A, that money could get stolen, two, you could lose it, three, it was a two to three day bus trip back. And that's the only way you could get money back to your family. And so you can imagine once you had the ability to send it digitally, that means you could send money more frequently, the money was a lot safer, and it means you could spend more time working rather than spending, you know, two, three days on a return bus trip back to a remote village in rural Kenya as well. And so... It was a really, really exciting chance for me to see how you could actually use fintech, not just for creating shareholder value, but actually for societal value and for nation building as well. And so as a result of that, I definitely, I wouldn't say that I was like, wow, we should go build yonder now, but it kind of helped me form this thesis that, hey, actually financial services are such a key part in a healthy, flourishing society. 
And actually, you could use technology and financial service to sort of accelerate that transformation for nations as well. And so I guess I have this massive lofty goal of playing a small role in helping change the trajectory of a nation through a business that I could be part of and be part of building as well. Amazing. What a story. And it's, uh, yeah, you can really see the opportunities, as you say, to have a real massive impact in society from building those types of businesses. So for anyone that hasn't come across Yonder, how is it different from other credit cards out there? Who is it for? Yeah, so the best description I've heard a customer describe Yonder as is a, it's as if Monzo, American Express and Secret London had a baby. That's like a really, really nice description by a customer. A better way of describing it is like we're creating a next generation lifestyle credit card with a massive ambition to help young city adventurers make the most of their city experiences, helping them become a tourist in their own city. So our target customers, young 20, 30, 40-year-olds who live in major cities all across the world who are there to go and make the most of the city experience. And they've moved there because they're for career opportunities, they're there because they want to explore, they're there because they want to find a partner, they're there because... They want to go and experience as much as they can of, of a city living experience. And we want to be their financial companion to that experience of moving. And part of that came from my experience of moving to many different cities. I've lived in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. I've lived in San Francisco Bay Area. I've lived in Nairobi. i lived in London. And I have this like sort of special heart when I think about the excitement, starting experience of moving to a big city and also a huge empathy for the overwhelming feeling when you sort of move to a city going like, where do I even start? And so we sort of want to help consumers in sort of three different ways. Firstly, one, giving them a financial product to help them get started when they move to a big city, but two, help them have a more rewarding experience when they move into that city as well. And so we're sort of different in three major ways. One, we have this rewards experience that is really built around high quality curated experience. So rather than traditional airline miles or cash back, We want to help you discover great things to do, whether it's dining, fitness, travel, at-home experiences or ticketed events and entertainment. We want to provide a way for you to discover places to go, but then also get value from your spend by giving you you a dinner for two at a new up-and-coming restaurant you've never heard of or help you discover a new fitness class that you take your mates to where you can hopefully meet some new friends as well and have that fully covered in yonder. The second thing that we do differently is bring that sort of really rich consumer first experience to credit cards. And by and large, most people have a pretty bad experience with credit cards, whether the feeling that they're going to try and get tricked by it or just like the sort of the app experience feeling really, really clunky and archaic. And so we've built, you know, they brought the Neobank experience to credit cards. So you can literally sign up in minutes, get a credit check online, and then within seconds have a digital card that you can use online and add your card to Apple Pay and Google Pay. But we've also done a lot of work as well to really eliminate the stress out of debt. So things like real-time transaction notifications, so you don't have to worry about overspending, being able to set your spend breakdown, have more flexible ways to set up auto pay so you don't have to worry about forgetting your bill, you know, paying more interest than you expected, but also giving you more transparent ways to borrow. So even small things like when you choose to borrow, we'll tell you not just in percentage figures, but in pound figures, how much that will cost you to borrow as well. So you can make like really informed decision on how you want to manage your cash flow as well. And then we've also eliminated all the sludge from credit cards. So all the things like charging you late payment fees, charging you paper statement fees, charging you overdue fees. And we also freeze your interest. We've removed those annoying fees. We also freeze your interest when you're overdue. 
and we don't charge you surcharges for making like emergency ATM withdrawals as well. So sort of like removing the sludge, make it way more transparent. And then lastly, letting you sign up, even if you've just moved to London or moved to the UK as well. And so we use things like open banking to look at your cash flow data in addition to your credit file to underwrite you so we get a full picture of your financial picture rather than just relying on just your credit file, which is really, really challenging because if you've just moved to a new country, your credit file is generally quite thin and don't just have a lot of information about you as well. So, you know, we try and solve a multitude of things, but really, really focused on that experience of people who have moved to a, a big city and want to make the most of that experience. Sounds so amazing, Tim. Love what it stands for. And I know tons of Yonder customers that adore the customer experience and they love the, I guess, how it's opening up their minds to lots of interesting new places and connections. It's really unique and it's clearly been a huge success. So before we come on to all the amazing things that have happened, what were these early days like? So you you kind of came up with the concept, you got going. How were those early days for you and your co-founders? And were there any kind of classic early mistakes you made that you wish somebody told you about before you started? So the early days were really, really, really scrappy. I still remember we bought secondhand laptops from ClearScore for like £450. There were these really old 2017 MacBook Pros that were basically getting decommissioned out. We were renting a charity co-working space in King's Cross and a good shout out to Arc Co-working. It was a very, very economical option but it had some slight character elements about it so whenever a bus came past the building would shake we had to go to evacuate it because the building behind us fell down if you wanted to lock up the building you had to literally go to each floor and yell out is anyone in here is anyone in here oh okay oops sorry i set the alarm on while you were in the building there was definitely no swipe card access it, you know it was a really really scrappy scrappy time but I definitely think it really helped create a lot of the discipline we really wanted early days. We had very little desk space. At one point, we were sh- there were seven of us in, I'd say, in a space no, mig- no bigger than maybe like six by six meters square, a tiny little space. But it was a lot of fun. And I think we built a lot of culture and we built a lot of resilience with those times. I would say, you know, we didn't really have, I guess, I don't think we made any of the, the massive classic early stage mistakes. I think we were really fortunate that we had both first-hand experience at a scale-up, which was ClearScore at the time. And so we got to see a lot of the mistakes they made and learn from a lot of them and also learn from a lot of the things they did so we could kind of just copy and paste some of the practices so that we could hopefully avoid some of the silly mistakes. Secondly, we just had a set of like great investors and advisors around us, a lot of them who were just former operators. And we spoke to them a lot to be like, what are the stupid mistakes we shouldn't be making? And can you just tell us what mistakes you made so we can try and not repeat them. And then lastly, I spent a lot of time just listening to interviews from early stage founders because I was like, look, to be honest, a lot of the problems someone's probably solved before. And so I had a small little thing where every morning I'll be making breakfast and I would just listen to an interview every day for the last two and a half years with a early stage founder. And what I'll try and do is like pattern recognize what like the common threads of problems that it was hiring, process, policies, just what are the like the really small things that people tend to ignore that actually if you put in a bit of time early up front actually will save you from a world of pain. So I don't think we made massive sort of early stage mistakes. I think the only thing that I would say is we were probably a bit too cheap for too long. I think we probably were in the scrappy mindset for slightly too long and there's a period of time I think I think it was this year 
I spent the weekend with my wife building the furniture in the office. And we, then we were like, remember we spent like 10 hours on a Sunday doing and we were exhausted. And we realized we probably should just paid someone because I really could not be doing this on my weekends anymore. So that was probably a big lesson for me. I think actually getting out of that mindset of being that scrappy, I think is important. I think it is fun, but our office is a lot bigger now. So trying to do everything yourself is a lot more difficult. <laughs> Although funny story, I think even on the first, our first employee who joined was um, a guy called Craig and I literally gave him an Allen key and said, hey, welcome to Yonder. Here's a box and an Allen key. You probably need to assemble your own monitor and your own desk. Good luck. I realized that was not the best on what I also told him, well, we actually all had to also go ask him and said, hey, we've just done paywall. Can you check your bank account whether you actually got paid? We actually realized that we didn't know how to pay people as well. And the first couple of pay runs was a bit of a mess. We ended up having to just do manual bank transfers because we, we mucked it up. So thankfully, nothing too serious. Really funny, you know, stupid lessons. Yeah, I'm sure lots of other founders. I'm chuckling along because my my wife helped me. I mean, my wife's way more practical than me. So it was very much my wife helped put together our first one of our first offices and she made it look nice. And uh, yeah, many times have I butchered payroll in these early days of JBM. So I, I feel your pain on that one. But it, no, I know all these, I think in some ways that the early days, the scrappiness, as you mentioned, they're early formative times in terms of, as you say, putting in place some of the discipline and setting those kind of cornerstones in a way of how you're going to build the business. But I know it's evolved a lot since then. And then building a fintech is no easy feat at the best of times, but you also have to contend with COVID and an economic downturn since you started the business. So how have you navigated those challenges and what has helped you persevere through those really, really difficult days? Because you were up against it. So uh, would love to learn for any founder maybe currently navigating their, their first economic downturn. Would love to learn from your experience and any lessons or advice you have for them. I would say this is... Probably not the most helpful lessons because this is my first economic downturn as well. It was quite funny because I had to think about it. The last big economic downturn was in 2008 and I was still in university. And actually, Australia was pretty insulated from the 2008 crisis as well. So it was a massive shock to me actually as well because I've never had to deal with a huge downturn before and COVID, by the way. It was like back-to-back crises in the space of two, three years. Part of it was probably a little bit naive. We were a bit like, oh, look, COVID's happened. It can only go up from here. So let's start yonder during COVID because when the markets recover, we set ourselves up really, really well for, you know, an upward trajectory. And what we didn't expect was, well, actually with COVID, the markets would rally. And actually post-COVID, the markets would crash. And that was completely unexpected. I would say a bit of it is just, it sounds so silly, but just this element of just keep going. I think a lot of people give up too early. And one actually data point that I found really, really helpful was from one of our investors who was an operator for about 10, 15 years. And he ran a company that was selling to financial services. And by the time they started to get traction, the 2008 crisis happened. And the problem was the most impacted industry was financial services. So imagine trying to sell software to financial services into the 2008 crisis. And, you know, you look back and everything worked out in the end. And one of the things I asked him was like, well, what the hell do we do? And I think one of the, the first things he said was like, just keep going. Just don't give up. Because every great company goes through a number of crises. And actually, if you look at the history of every single great company ever built, they have all gone through at least two to three downturns, whether it was the dot-com bubble in 2001, 
2008 crisis, like they've all had to navigate that. And so actually it's not a matter of if, but more of a matter of when you'll have to go through it. And so actually you might as well go and learn to how to navigate it rather than kind of expect it's not going to happen to you, but just be like, it's going to happen. Just go and use this time to build a better business because this is just part of company building and every company that lasts for more than 10 years will go through at least one to two crises and their most sort of delicate times of building as well. And so part of it was going, okay, it's happened. This is the fact, but actually we can navigate it. And the most important thing is, is to like respond, but don't over-respond. And so Patrick Collins at the start has got this really, really interesting saying, which is like short-term pessimism, but long-term optimism, meaning, hey, let's look at the information you see today and be really real. Like you have to make tough decisions. You have to respond to the market. You can't ignore them. You can't be like, you know, la, 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 it's not happening. Like it is happening. But in the same respect, think about the long-term ambition and think about the long-term industry trajectory. And if you take a step back and look at every single industry, nearly all industries have always over time done better, but they've always had speed humps along the way. And so one of the things I always have to do is remind ourselves like, hey, think about the long-term ambition, but also think about why we're building this in the first place. And we work with an outside coach and it's super helpful because there are times when we're like, wow, this is really, really sucky. And things she always takes us back to is like, hey, guys, remember when we first started having this conversation? Remember why you guys decided to go on this journey in the first place? Don't forget that. And I think I kind of like this because I think this is a really great time to really test between, you know, who are the startup and VC tourists who are just here for the, the good times versus who are the ones who are really in it for the long haul. And, I, I you know, I really like it because I, I went into this knowing it was going to be hard. And so I guess I'm not super surprised. And I think this is about as hard as I thought it would be. Uh, it's really good to hear. And I think refreshingly honest and candid. And I think a lot of the advice you share there is important for any founders listening that might be feeling a bit down at the moment. This is kind of par for the course. And I think just pushing ahead and, uh, you know, JBM has had its fair share of trials and tribulations over the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, you do just have to keep believing in what you're building and, and just push through it. I think there is money out there at the moment. I think one of the kind of, there is a lot of pessimism. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, oh, you know, fundraising is super hard and it really is. But we know that there are VCs still deploying capital. And you obviously raised a massive Series A led by Norstone and RTP Global. And also previous 40-minute mental guest, Sharmadine Reed, I think is one of the angels who got involved. So you've done it. So I really want to provide some optimism out there for anyone that's going through this process. Can you just share a little bit about your fundraising experience? What were your main learnings from it? And just is there any kind of couple of bits of advice you can give founders that are going through that process right now? I think that... Fundraising is a lot harder. That's just fact. Let's say, let's call it what it is. And it's fundamentally supply and demand. People are like, oh my gosh, the VCs have moved the goalposts. Things are getting so much harder. I'm like, yeah, they have because the market's moved and investors aren't charity givers. They need to generate returns for their LPs. And so I always go back to like understand macro situation first. And so I always go back to the team. I'm like, look, the way markets work is you go interest rates go up, public markets go down. Therefore, late stage private equity goes down. Therefore, earlier stage goes down as well. That's just fact. So we just have to adjust to that. In the same way that if we're a public company, markets go up and down. And that's just life. And so I think the first thing that really helped us was just going, this is the new reality. Just, just own it and 
there's going to be times when you fundraise in good times and there's going to be times you're going to fundraise in bad times. And you can't control those things. All you can do is control what you can control, which is like build a great company and just get really good at fundraising in the context you're in. We found that the investors who believed in the long-term thesis were 10 times easier to sell to than those who are like FOMO investors who are sort of just like jumping on the bandwagon. I think about like the investors jumping on generative AI right now. Like for me, if I was building a generative AI startup, I would have really focused on the investors who had a thesis in this three years ago before it was like a hot sector. And so we always found that the investors who just had a strong thesis in fintech over the long run were just much, much easier to get over the line in the sense of they got the space. I wasn't trying to sell them on the industry. I was just trying to sell them that we were the company to back in the industry versus companies who are like, oh, fintech isn't very exciting anymore. It's like, look, I'm not going to try and turn your opinion around around fintech being an attractive industry. It's just like I have zero ability to do that. It's such a hard thing. Again, I would say in general, it is really, really hard to change someone's opinion. So don't bother. <laughs> Find the messes who who you really believe in the thesis and really believe in the space. And for us, actually, part of it was just finding, it was a lot of talk about product market fit. I think there's actually an element of investor company fit as well. And so I don't need to find 100 investors. I need to find two or three who believe in our sector and believe in what we're doing as well. So I think that's a really, for me, a really, really useful way of thinking about it. I would say the second thing is like just fundamentals matter. Building a good business matters again, which I think is probably good. I think the discipline of actually work your way down the P&L, right? At the very top is customers times by revenue equals top line revenue minus gross costs equals gross margin minus SG&A equals EBITDA. And so actually like seed, seed investors are trying to find companies that have product market fit or some degree of it, right? So that's just like the first line, which is like customers multiplied by, do you have some way of making money? Some like light form of monetization, that's top line revenue. Minus gross cost is gross margin. So as you go to B, A, B rounds, gross margin matters. And then work down your P&L where like EBITDA matters by the time you get to gross stage, investors like series B, C plus. That's like fundamentally, that's like not that new. If you're running a local cafe in Old Street, those are the same things you have to think about. So those like fundamentals don't change. And so I think going back to like, what is a fundamentally good business, full stop, is what you should focus on. And I think that, yes, there's all fundraising strategies and all that. And I think there's a whole bunch written about fundraising strategies and they're really, really helpful. But I think what you can control is build a great business and then let the market decide valuation. And our general mindset is, look, people are like, I don't want a down round. I don't want a flat round. I want an up round. I want to have a trade monitor. I'm like, look, honestly, valuation is all basically bull crap. Right now, it's just make sure you have enough capital to continue to grow your business and don't and let the market decide valuations the same way the market decides public market valuations like you don't really get to pick the market picks and then sometimes in a bull market your valuation would be great and a bad market valuation would be bad so what like just roll with it and keep going and i think that's one thing that we've just found really helpful as like a way of thinking about the problem 
Yeah, I think it's a really, really great way to look at it. And thank you for sharing your perspectives. I guess one of the most important things of achieving success and building a great business is people. And I know that you've done a great job of scaling your team and hiring great talent. I'd love to quickly touch on this just because it's obviously very close to our heart and something that we work with founders on every day. So if you don't mind, we'd love to learn a bit about particularly the early hires. Like, How did you go about those first few hires? And what were your critical learnings from that experience? And then secondly, I think there are going to be a lot of people listening to this that will want to send their CVs to Yonder. So it'd be good just to understand how you talk about culture and what you look for when you are looking to hire talent. So there are two different schools of thought and we have a thesis. It's right for us. It's not right for everyone. One school of thought is like hire young people with no experience and then just everyone just figure out what to do. Interns, really, really scrappy people. That's one way I felt I wanted to be way more intentional about how we built it. And the way I thought of it was, I guess, a couple of ways I thought about it. Well, the first thing is that every great tech company isn't built on tech. It's built on people. Right? Like If you think about what makes a Apple, Google, Meta, Amazon, Tesla, whatever these companies are, they're fundamentally built on great people. And so, okay, let's go, like, if you kind of let's start with that fact in mind. Then the second thing then is, is if in order to build, achieve our mission, we need to build a great business. In order to build a great business, we need to build a great team. Therefore, my full-time job is like head of recruiting. I always joke that like I still do a lot of the recruiting and my full-time job will continue to be recruiting for my entire career while I am running Yonder. So if I kind of start with that, then I was like, okay, great. Well, I also know that I can't hire every single person, but who will hire those people? Well, my first five employees will hire my next 15 employees, who then hire my next 30 employees, who hire my next 100 employees. So each person you hire actually has a multiplicative effect on the rest of your hiring across the business. The second thing is when you're like a 10-person company, every single hire represents 10% of your culture. And when you're a six-person company, each person you hire represents about 16%, 17% of your culture. That is massive. So your early hires have a disproportionate impact, both positive and negative, on the culture you'll build for the next 10 years of your company. So if you hold that in truth, therefore, you want to spend a stupid amount of time then on your early hires. You know, that's my thesis. Now, that's not the right one, but that's our thesis was based on, like, that's sort of the way I laddered that logic. Therefore, we were like, okay, we need to find people who are extremely talented in their field, like the top 1% of any given field in, a, in whatever function they're in. Secondly, I need to believe that they can go and build their function out and hire the next five, 10 people in their team. Therefore, take our time with hiring and get it right and don't compromise. And that sounds so obvious, but there are real trade-offs here. So when we hired our first, let's call it six, seven people, we had four rounds of interviews, which sounds a lot for a team of three founders doing four rounds. We did lots of reference checks for every single person. I think we on average interviewed about 30 to 40 people per role. That's interview, by the way. That's not CV screen. CV screening was like 150 plus for every role. And whenever we were like, we're not sure, we're like, no. Nah. And the question we'd ask us, I was like, could we believe this person could hire the next five people under them? And the answer is no. It's like, no, nah, not good enough. Keep going. Now, the reality of what that happened was, is the first couple of months, the first three months of Yonder, we went to our first board meeting and we had done nothing. Like we had not shipped product. We had not built anything. All we had done was like work on hiring. And I don't think we had even filled all our roles. So that's like a slightly embarrassing situation to be in where your investors are like, hey, guys, show us your like momentum, show us your milestones. We're like, we've done nothing. We've just been like 
hiring. Now, I think that's paid off because I think we've hired a really, really, really strong team. But there are real trade-offs, and I think people need to be prepared to take those trade-offs. And we, you know, we are still really, really slow hirers to this date. Like, I always ask a question if someone's like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm like, if you're not sure, that's a no. Like, you should be like banging down the door to want to hire that person. And if that's not the case, not a good fit for Yonder. And so I guess in terms of, I think it's just, you need to build a hiring philosophy from day one and spend time thinking about it. I think people just don't spend enough thinking about it. I spent months reading a lot about hiring and then forming our own thesis from all the information I read. There's a lot of great content out there. I will not tell you anything sort of groundbreaking, but what I would say is just spend the time thinking about it and spend the time learning because I think you're going to benefit a lot more by just spending time thinking about it. I think I probably spoke to 20 to 30 odd people about hiring alone, in addition to like reading four different books on just hiring to try and form our thesis. And I feel very good about what we've built so far. Love that. No, I think it's really important to get that right, particularly at the beginning. It really can make or break a company, can't it? And it seems like you've done a great job with that so far. We're sadly close to an end. So we've just got one more question before our wrap-up questions. And I just wanted to come back to the topic of credit. I think it's fair to say credit has a not the greatest reputation. So I know you're doing some great work to change that. So what advice do you have for anyone listening who is hesitant to take out credit? And how can we all build a better relationship with debt? Yeah, so I think credit fundamentally is a tool. And I do this sort of presentation to the team every single time as part of their onboarding. And I basically describe credit as neither good nor evil. And the best analogy to think about is think about fire. Fire is neither good nor evil. On one hand, it can be incredibly destructive. Bush fires, you can burn yourself. Fire is an incredibly destructive thing. And yet on the flip side, we need fire for combustion, we need fire for cooking, we need fire for heating. And so is fire good or bad? Well, neither. Actually, it can be used for both good and bad things. And so... Actually, credit is exactly the same thing. It's not a new concept. In fact, credit has been around for like literally millennia. If you look at old history of the Assyrian days, there was some sort of credit. It was lending. It was just done through temples and religious institutes. It's not a new concept. But what I think is really important is people's mindset about it. And I'd, I'd say that the first thing is, is that when I was working at ClearScore, the team I worked with did some research around relationship to credit. I mean, there was one group of people that thought about credit as free money and another group of people that thought about credit as something that you borrow, which you need to pay back and you pay a fee for getting access to that money early. Now, you can imagine which group formed a better relationship with credit. The former had the tendency to take out credit, spend on it, go into over-indebtedness and basically be like, credit is bad, this is whole. Well, of course it is. If you conceive it as free money, yes, it is highly destructive. But if you look at it, what it really is, which is you're getting access to something earlier. Think about a mortgage. You could save up to buy a house. Probably take you about 20 years to do it. Credit says, I can now get that house today, but the cost of getting that house today is interest. And I'm just paying a fee to get that money earlier. So you're bringing something from the future to today. Now, if you think about that as a concept, that is the role of credit. And so when every time someone says, I'm scared of credit, I'm like, no, no. Think about it in the lens of respect it like fire. And yet when you use it as a tool, it can be super, super, super valuable because it means you can basically bring the future to now. Now there's a cost to that and you need to just know that there's a cost to that. And so I think going there with the eyes open on what it can do for you 
but what it can do against you if you don't use it well. And I always say that credit is a great slave, but a really bad master. And so that's sort of the relationship with credit we want people to have with credit. Love that. Great answer. Thank you so much, Tim. We're sadly at our wrap-up question. So three quick-far wrap-up questions to end. This is 40 Minute Mentor. So if you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Very strange one. A chap called William Wilberforce. No one probably knows who he is. He was the guy who basically led the abolition of the slaves of slavery in the UK. And he died three days after the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. So he spent his entire life on this one cause and literally just died a couple of days after he succeeded. Wow, that's a very inspiring one. Thank you. And it's time for our mystery question roulette. We're doing that this series. We're getting our community to send in some questions. So if you can choose one, two or three, uh, we'll see what they've chosen for you. I'll pick three. Should there be more of a focus on the relationship with money and debt in schools? Short answer is yes. And I think... There is a lot of people have no idea how to manage their money when they finish high school. And it's actually surprised me, even amongst our team, we work in a financial service company and we started to bring on like a actress money coach. And a lot of the team are getting a lot of value from it. It's made me realize that financial education, if you've grown up with it, is so obvious. But if you haven't, no one teaches it to you. So short answer is yes. Love that. And I couldn't agree more. And finally, Tim, if there's one piece of advice that you would like to leave our listeners with today, what would it be? I would say just get started. A lot of people have great ideas. Ideas are cheap. Just get going. And I think the difference between those who have done something and haven't is literally the ones who have, have just gotten going and given it a go. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, Tim. Really fantastic place to end this chat. Love what you're building at Yonder. Super excited to see where it goes in the years ahead. So thank you for joining us on the 40 Minute Mental. Awesome. Thanks so much, James. Cheers. Quick tip before you go. If you want to become the best founder or business leader you can be, then you need to add Secret Leaders with Dan Murray Serta to your podcast rotation. Each week, they explore the successes, mistakes, and learnings behind the world's most successful companies, straight from the founder's mouth. I've been listening to Secret Leaders for years and picked up so many useful insights along the way that have helped me build JBM. Dan has spoken to the brains behind Klarna, Elemis, Leon, and IMDB, and that's just from their most recent series. So search Secret Leaders with Dan Murray Serta from wherever you get your podcasts. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship. Mm-hmm.